from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Elaine Cha. A couple of months ago, a local grade schooler named Hannah wrote to the station. She mailed us a letter written in blue marker. In her note, she implored us and others to keep the war in Ukraine and the Ukrainian people top of mind. She wrote about the effects of warfare there on her friends here. She said she feared that attention to the war was beginning to fade in the minds of many Americans. Hannah had a point. According to polling from the Pew Research Center from this past fall, Americans expressed less concern then about Ukraine being defeated by Russia than they did in the spring. Interest in events transpiring in Eastern Europe has declined among people in the U.S. Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24, 2022, about 10 months ago. And since that time, the U.S. government estimates that at least 100,000 Russian troops have been killed or wounded. The same is true for Ukraine. Its losses, however, include at least 40,000 Ukrainian civilians killed by Russia. There's no sign the war will end anytime soon. In a moment, we'll hear from NPR correspondent Brian Mann. He covered the war from the front lines. But first, it was just two weeks ago that Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky visited Washington, D.C. to address a joint meeting of Congress. It was the first time he had traveled outside his country since the intense Russian invasion began last year. Zelensky's time in D.C. included a visit to the White House, and in his passionate speech to Congress, he expressed gratitude as well as the need for more support. Early on in his address, Zelensky noted Ukraine's recent success in its efforts against Russia. We have no fear, nor should anyone in the world have it. Ukraine's gained this victory, and it gives us courage, which inspires the entire world. Americans gained this victory, and that's why you have succeeded in uniting the global community to protect freedom and international law. Europeans gained this victory, and that's why Europe is now stronger and more independent than ever. The Russian tyranny has lost control over us. and it will never influence our minds again. Yet, we have to do whatever it takes to ensure that countries of the Global South also gain such victory. I know one more, I think, very important thing. The Russians will stand a chance to be free only when they defeat the Kremlin in their minds. Yet, the battle continues, and we have to defeat the Kremlin on the battlefield. Yes, this battle is not only for the territory, for this or 
and other parts of Europe. The battle is not only for life, freedom, and security of Ukrainians or any other nation which Russia attempts to conquer. This struggle will define in what world our children and grandchildren will live and then their children and grandchildren. It will define whether it will be a democracy of Ukrainians and for Americans for all. This battle cannot be frozen or postponed. It cannot be ignored, hoping that the ocean or something else will provide a protection from the United States to China, from Europe to Latin America, and from Africa to Australia. The world is too interconnected and interdependent to allow someone to stay aside and at the same time to feel safe when such a battle continues. Our two nations are allies in this battle. And next year will be a turning point, I know it, the point when Ukrainian courage and American resolve must guarantee the future of our common freedom, the freedom of people who stand for their values. That's Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky two weeks ago during a joint meeting of the U.S. Congress. Later on in that speech, he made the case for continued and increased American and international support. So, so here is the front line. The tyranny which has no lack of cruelty against the lives of free people. And your support is crucial, not just to stand in such fight, but to get to the turning point to win on the battlefield. We have artillery. Yes. Thank you. We have it. Is it enough? Honestly, not really. <laughs> to ensure Bakhmut is not just a stronghold that holds back the Russian army, but for the Russian army to completely pull out, more cannons and shells are needed. If so, just like the Battle of Saratoga, the fight for Bakhmut will change the trajectory of our war for independence and for freedom. If your patriots stop the Russian terror against our cities, it will let Ukrainian patriots work to the full to defend our freedom. When Russia, when Russia cannot reach our cities, but its artillery, it tries to destroy them with missile attacks. More than that, Russia found an ally in this, in this genocidal policy, Iran. Iranian de deadly drones sent to Russia in hundreds. In hundreds became a threat to our critical infrastructure. That is how one terrorist has found the other it is just a matter of time when they will strike against your other allies. If we do not stop them now, we must do it. Again, that's Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky speaking to the U.S. Congress. He visited Washington, D.C. two weeks ago. 
And while it's true, as I mentioned earlier, that polls show the war in Ukraine fading from Americans' consciousness, there remains a commitment to sharing the stories of what's happening there. Included among those who are delivering upon that commitment is National Public Radio. Last year, NPR correspondent Brian Mann reported from the front lines. Brian is an addiction correspondent for the network and covers the opioid crisis and U.S. drug policy. And he's also part of NPR's team that reports in hostile environments, including in natural disasters, mass shootings, protests, and other events. In Ukraine, Brian waited in a bomb shelter in Odessa as people tried to flee the city and was on the front lines during shelling near Mykolaiv. He brought stories of children in the war zone to the world, and much more. St. Louis Public Radio's Rod Milam talked with Brian Mann in December about his experience covering the war. And for the rest of today's show, we'll bring you excerpts of that conversation. Rod started by asking Brian when he initially came to the conclusion that he wanted to cover the war. So what happened, Rod, is that uh, I was working for NPR in Beijing uh, earlier this year for the Winter Olympics. And people may remember that Russia became a major story during those Olympics. There was a, a scandal involving a Russian figure skater, uh, but also Vladimir Putin came and he was there with Xi Jinping. Uh, these two authoritarian leaders were there. And it was at a time when there were these rumblings of the war, that that there were troops already massing on the Ukrainian border. Um, in the Olympic Village where I was living, it was, you know, that was all people were talking about was this conflict that was brewing. And so I started researching and learning about it. And when I got home uh, and it became clear that the war was going to go on for a while, um, that uh, that the Ukrainians were going to hold back the Russian offensive, um, I volunteered to be you know, part of the team that rotates into Ukraine. Um, and uh, after uh, some weeks of the war, uh, when when the first line of NPR journalists needed to be relieved, needed to take a break back from the front lines, um, they rotated out, and I was one of the journalists who rotated in. So it was really that series of connections um, that that uh, drew me to this. And and I, as you mentioned, I had training working in hostile environments. So you know, I knew how to wear body armor. I I had been trained by uh, NPR's teams how to be. Uh, aware of of risky situations. And so, you know, that allowed me to go in and, and work with the team that was there. Now, in my work doing acts of journalism, I've run into war correspondence all along, and it takes something extra, something that I don't have within me to actually decide to go into a war zone. And this was your first one. What, and you, but you've covered other pretty dangerous situations. What made you want to actually go cover this? Uh, you know, it, it's it's a really good question. Um, let me say, first of all, that, you know, one of the things that was a, a real blessing for me, Rod, was that when I got to Ukraine, I was surrounded by incredibly talented professional NPR correspondents, many of them who, you know, did have experience in war zones. And so I really was um, able to kind of ride their coattails a little bit and learn from them. And so I wasn't thrown into the sort of deep end with no support. Um but, you know, I, I have to say, I really did see this invasion and, and you know, the the ideas about Russia and the role that, that Putin was playing in the world when I was there in Beijing. It really, um, you know, it fascinated me and it troubled me. And, um, 
And, and I just decided that it was something that I wanted to help cover if NPR needed me and if there was, you know, room on the team for me. Um, and so, uh, I, yeah, I, I felt really compelled to be part of this story. Um, I do want to emphasize that while it is a very risky environment and the, the team that's there now is, you know, they're in in harm's way. The NPR reporters, are, they're all remarkable people. Um NPR does do everything possible to keep its journalists and its Ukrainian teams as safe as possible. So, you know, we are, you know, it, it is hazardous. It is, it is scary, really scary at times, but, um, you know, they, they do everything that they can to keep us safe. I mean, that's very good to hear, but there's still a big jump between war correspondent, even then covering a hurricane or a disaster or the opioid crisis. Was there something other than the interest in the story and the way, and of course the, the sort of connection or the the closeness that you had with the influence of Vladimir Putin while you were covering the the Olympic or the Olympics in uh, in Beijing was there something that kind of pushed you over the edge and how did you prepare to actually go into the war zone? That's a good question. The way that I prepared was to do you know a ton of research about the the political environment. Talked I talked to generals, I talked to soldiers, I talked to everyone who I could to understand how this conflict was shaping up um, to really get to where I, I felt like I could contribute as a journalist. In terms of the, the inspiration to be there, um, you know, I've always been drawn to big stories. Um, I've always felt like I wanted to be as close to, you know, a big breaking news event as, as, as I could be. Um, and um, I, I, I'm not really sure what tipped me to feel like I wanted to play a part in this conflict, but I did just feel like it was a story that I wanted to help tell. Um, and, and I have to say that as much as it was at times a traumatic and ugly place to be, um, it, it, I do feel honored and blessed to have been there. Uh, the Ukrainian people um, are remarkable. And, um, you know, we live sometimes it feels like in dark times here in the U.S. It can be confusing and lots of you know intense news happening all the time, mass shootings and other events, wars around the world. But being there with these courageous people who are fighting so incredibly hard for their freedom and and holding out in the way that they've done for these nine months, um, you know, I, I I can't say entirely what the impulse was that got me there, but I'm glad that I went. It was it was a, a powerful experience and, and an important one for me. That's NPR correspondent Brian Mann talking about his experience covering the war in Ukraine last year. More of that conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. Welcome back to that conversation where Rod asked whether Brian had the opportunity to report from the Russian side of the conflict. So the Russian military and the Russian government has made it clear that they will target journalists, right? So in some conflicts in the past, it's been possible 
to, to sort of report on both sides safely. Not this time. This time, um, the, the Russians are, you know, they're a very dangerous military, very disorganized and, and very hostile to, to reporters. Um, and so I worked entirely on the Ukrainian side. The one thing that I did do uh, was, was work in what's called the gray zone. And what that is, Rod, is that this is such a long military front and it's it involves artillery and drone uh, attacks and different things that occur over a long period of, of the of the geography. And so sometimes it's hard to know sort of where you're at, where is the front line, how far away are the Russians? And so um, there were times when um, we were definitely in a part of, of the conflict zone where where both Ukrainian and Russian military were were active. Um, but in those even in those places, we were always in the company of Ukrainian military. That was the only way that we could be there and be there safely. So it was your first time in a war zone. What was what did you think your job was there as a war correspondent? How did you decide what it was that you you actually covered? It's a really good question. Um, I had two goals. The first was to tell really human stories, right? I'm not a veteran war correspondent. And so what I felt like I could bring to this was, you know, looking for um, real people having real human experiences. And so when I would find displaced families, when I would find young people who were confused by what was happening to them, um, I felt like I could really contribute to some of that. And I could really sit and listen and spend time with them. And, you know, one young woman who you know, I'll, I'll think of the rest of my life. She was fleeing by herself, um, leaving Odessa, trying to get out to Poland. And, you know, she was terrified of the war and of the death that was around her there. But she was also terrified because, you know, there's a lot of human trafficking and a lot of danger and, and organized crime around people who are fleeing. And so she was incredibly vulnerable. And, you know, that was one of the stories that I was I was able to tell as time went on, the other piece that I really wanted to contribute was trying to understand what it felt like for Ukrainian soldiers near the front lines. And so I did quite a bit of work um, right up until the time that I was forced to leave Ukraine. I did quite a bit of time working with military units, working with Ukrainian soldiers, um, really trying to get a feel for their lives, going to the trenches where you know, where they lived and fought against Russian tanks, going to bunkers where they lived underground while cruise missiles were landing. Um, and again, because I'm not a military expert, what I was able to do was try to tell those soldiers individual human stories. And um, and again, I have to say it was, a, it was a really powerful experience to be with those men uh, and women, and uh, and hear how they were they were surviving, and 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 they really were eager to talk and eager to tell their stories. Now, Brian, do you speak Ukrainian or Russian? Because from what I read in some of your background, and when we talked a little bit ahead of time, it seems like most of your beat has been combined to or confined to the United States and a little bit of Canada. Yeah, that's right. I do not speak Russian or Ukrainian. Um, so what happens with uh, NPR's teams? is that um, when a correspondent like myself goes into a country like Ukraine is you're, you're assigned to work usually with locals, people who are gonna be your translator, people who help you kind of understand the local culture. Often you'll have a driver and also a security person, a kind of bodyguard who keeps you safe. Um, and, and, and there I really wanna sort of 
nod at the fact that Ukrainians working incredibly professionally, a lot of them are actually journalists. They're people who, you know, their own journalistic careers have been disrupted by the war. And so they've come to work for American news organizations, really talented writers and producers. Um, and, and I was lucky enough to work with some great, very brave Ukrainian translators who traveled with me, you know, into, into some of these frontline war zone areas really bravely. You know, they're wearing body armor, they're wearing helmets just like I am. Now, now that you actually bring up the whole journalism piece and people who worked as journalists who worked with you in the translation area, what role did you think a journalist and journalism played during this conflict? Um, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine. It was uh, unauthorized by the UN and such. And journalism is supposed to be there to be the rough draft, to give the rough draft of history. What role do you think you yourself as a journalist and other journalists around uh, that were there were playing? So one of the things that's really interesting and troubling about this conflict, Rod, is that, you know, obviously there's the, the, the violence of the war. There's cruise missiles hitting daily, you know, tanks battling, all of that. But there's a whole other layer to this, and it's the information war or the disinformation propaganda war. And Russia, you know, if you think about their interference in U.S. elections, their presence on social media, Russia has been really masterful at trying to mislead and, and misinform people about things. And, and they have, have really launched a huge barrage of disinformation around this war. And so one of the things that was really fascinating was to be a journalist there essentially trying to set the record straight, trying to push through that noise and push through that set of lies um, and really try to inform people in Ukraine, in Europe, but also back here in the United States where Russia is very active in trying to sway public opinion. Um, and one of the things that was really beautiful and, and, and it was really a powerful experience was to be in Ukraine and have the Ukrainian people really embracing the idea of journalism, the idea, and, and, and they understood we were gonna tell an objective factual story. We were not just doing Ukrainian propaganda. We weren't there you know, to just fluff up what they were doing. We were gonna report whatever we saw, um, but they wanted that. And, they, you know, and, and I really came away feeling like in these moments of conflict, um, especially in this modern age where there is so much conspiracy theory and disinformation, you know, kind of QAnon level stuff. And, and, and really, I have to say, it is heartbreaking the lies that the Russian people have been told about Ukraine, about Nazis running the government and, and you know, persecution of, of Russian speaking people. You know, I was all over the country and I, and I looked you know, for any evidence that any of that was true. Um, and, and it just wasn't. And, and sadly, of course, Russia has shut down the ability of most of their people to get good sources of information. Um, and so I, I really did come away uh, feeling like I had seen just how powerful reporting, factual, ethical reporting can be at helping people understand the truth about something, even something as ugly and, and violent as a war. I'd like to kind of move on a little bit uh, to some of the story that you might not have been able to tell. Um, I've worked on the air for a very long time. You've worked in broadcast media for a very long time as well. And we talked about it just before the chat. 
one of the, re the restriction, the big restriction that we have in broadcast media is time. Um, and there's only so much that you can tell. You can put some more on the web, but a lot of things end up on the cutting room floor. Do you have an idea of a story or a part of the story um, from some of the situations that you talked about already that you'd like to give a little bit more of a full telling? You already mentioned um, something about a woman that you saw early on who was trying to get out of uh, out of Ukraine and she was very vulnerable. Maybe you'd like to tell a little story from that or maybe there's something else on your mind that you, you kind of like to expand that people that are watching uh, this event right now would not normally get to hear during their during drive time, during morning edition or all things considered during one of your reports. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was really remarkable, Rod, about, about being there was to watch the way that normal Ukrainian people would pick up their lives, even in the immediate aftermath of this violence. So, you know, you would be in Mykolaiv or Odessa and, you know, a cruise missile would hit. There would be an explosion in the city and the, the air raid sirens would be going off. Um, you know, sometimes you would be in a place literally where you could hear Russian tanks firing in the distance, kind of the thunder of Russian tanks. Um, uh, and, and you would find Ukrainian people still sweeping the sidewalks and baking Easter bread um, or, you know, going into a worship service. Um, you would find people, uh, you know, there were times when I would be, you know, I would ask someone a couple of questions and they would insist that I come in and have a bowl of borscht, you know, and, and the, their hospitality. Again, this is in moments when I was afraid for my own safety. And, um, you know, it would be elderly people who would be, you know, walking down the street with buckets that they would be, you know, going to get water because the Russians had knocked out the, uh, the water system in their city. Um, but they would stop and they would, you know, they would offer kindness and they would offer hospitality. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of alluded to this before, but there, there is something really remarkable about um, the capacity not just to persevere in the face of, of this kind of ugliness and this kind of danger, um, but to do it in a way that is still very human. I, I'm not gonna say that, it, you, know, you know, obviously Ukrainians get weary and they get scared and you know, they're human, but it, it really was a lesson for me every day that I was there about how to sort of, have courage and have generosity um you know so yes every time i would do a story about someone you know i felt like i could do a an hour-long documentary about that one you know one little old lady one of the stories that i that i did uh from mikolaev on a day that we actually came under russian rocket fire um just before we came under this rocket fire and we were hearing incoming artillery all around us we pulled up in our car and there were two elderly women sitting on a bench together, just out in the open, sitting on a bench. And they had a jar between them. And these women were sharing fresh uh, homemade pickles. One of them had made 
uh, her own recipe of fresh homemade pickles. And she'd come out with her friend and she said, we're just gonna sit, it was a beautiful spring day. It was gorgeous outside. And uh, they, despite the war, they were gonna sit there and they were gonna share these pickles. And of course they wanted us to sit and have pickles with them. Um, and, uh, you know, so those moments really stay with me and they're they're a big part of the joy part of, of what this this work was about. More of that conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. Welcome back. I'm Elaine Cha. This hour, we're listening to a conversation with NPR correspondent Brian Mann, who last year covered the war in Ukraine from the front lines. He spoke with St. Louis Public Radio's Rod Milam last month for a talk sponsored by the American Homefront Project. That's a major public media initiative that reports on the lives of military personnel, veterans, and their families. It receives support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Let's get back to that conversation, which included listener questions. One such question was about whether Brian experienced a situation that made him fear for his safety. Yes, the short answer is I feared for my safety many times. And, um, you know, anyone in Ukraine right now, I mean, this, the entire country is being hit by Russian cruise missiles on a essentially a daily basis. Um, and there were times, I will tell you, among the most troubling experiences where sometimes you would be relaxing, you would just be outside your hotel you know, taking a break and kind of, you know, decompressing. And all of a sudden, a cruise missile would explode overhead, having been intercepted by Ukrainian anti-aircraft fire. And so, you know, you're in a peaceful moment, you're feeling like you're pretty far from the front lines. And all of a sudden, you know, it's, uh, you know, all hell breaks loose. And and that's disconcerting. Um, and, and I was at the front lines under, under uh, Russian rocket fire. That was a, a terrifying experience. Um, and, uh, and then the final thing I mentioned that I was forced to leave Ukraine, and that's because I was in a military convoy um, near the front lines near Kherson uh, in the south. And the military convoy that I was in came under uh, surveillance by Russian drones. Uh, and uh, the, the drivers of these military vehicles, the Ukrainians, feared that we were going to come under attack. And so they were driving evasively. Um, really fast trying to get out of this kind of remote area uh, near the trench works where we were and and unfortunately my driver lost control of the vehicle and and there was a, a quite violent crash um i was injured um broke my leg um had to be evacuated um uh some of my team were injured so um the, the bottom line is that NPR, like most news organizations, works incredibly diligently to minimize the risk, to keep us safe, to check every box, to make sure that they've thought about everything. But at the end of the day, you know, you're going into a war zone and, and there are variables you just can't anticipate. And so, um, yes, I did feel frightened. I did feel 
incredibly scared at times. There were moments that, uh, um, you know, were very ugly. Um, and uh, I won't sugarcoat that, you know, um, but at the same time, um, you know, I did feel throughout that it was a really mission driven project to be there. I never felt that it was, you know, perilous to be there. I never felt like it was, you know, that, that it was not a, an important thing to try to be there and tell that story. And so even when I was frightened by things, there was at least part of my brain that was saying, okay, let's just keep working. Let's try to get this story. I mean, I have this question and I think many people do, but specifically Ken does. What was the reaction to your family even before you decided to go into Ukraine? And what have they thought since? I'm adding that little part on on top of Ken's question. They're, they don't like they don't like that I went. They don't like that I will, that I hope to go back. Um, they have also, I will say that since I was injured um, in Ukraine, they, my family has um, stepped up enormously to care for me and to help support me. And, uh, you know, along with NPR, which is the, the network has been incredibly supportive. Um, a lot of friends and family have really helped me since, uh, since this happened. And so, um, but my, my mom, scolds me regularly for a lot of my life choices, not least my decision to go cover this war in Ukraine. How do you answer them? <laughs> I mean, clearly they hear you on the radio and they see you continue to do that, but how do you answer them in the moment? Um, well, first of all, I, I, I have worked in hostile environments for many years, hurricane zones, you know, mass shootings, big disaster areas. And so um, part of it is just, I say, this is kind of just part of what I do. And then Partially, I say that, you know, I, I always think really hard about the mission of a project. If there's a risk, some, something like this story, do I think it really matters enough to take this risk? And am I a journalist who can really contribute something meaningful that makes it worth the personal risk? Um, and I have to say that the people around me, my family, um, they always have respected that. If I come back to them and say, okay, I've heard your concerns. I know you don't want me to go. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I feel like this is an important one to do. Um, they've always had my back. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really wonderful. And it's not, it's not an easy thing that I ask people who love me to, to put up with. So I'm very grateful. And these, these, or this question from both Jan and Fontana, or Fontella, excuse me about that, uh, Fontella. Um, I'll try to mash that into two different things. Did you ever feel like you were in a time war back to maybe World War II level conflict as if it wasn't really a modern 2020 uh, conflict when civilians were being targeted and levels of brutality that we thought were in the past were actually going on uh, since we're talking about all of this and not, and we don't want to beat around the bush because we're talking about a war that's going on. Yeah. So I love this question. And here's, there are two ways that I do. First of all, I've always loved history. I've always been a big, you know, I've, I've been a big history buff about world war one and world war two, other conflicts in Europe. Um, and so there were times when it really did feel like I had gone through a time machine. I mean, I was at trenches that looked like they were out of world war one you know, where, where soldiers were living down underground in very primitive environments, um, gutting out conditions that are just, they seem impossible. Um, uh, so yeah. And, and, um, uh, the second thing I, I will say that felt like a time warp 
I'm 57. And so a lot of the, the wars in my life have been really morally ambiguous and morally difficult to understand. Um, you know, should we be there? Should we be fighting this war, um, whether it's Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan? This war feels like a time warp in that my best reporting, my best factual understanding of it is that there is no gray zone here. And this is like this is like World War II in the sense that you have Russia as an aggressor nation doing something that the entire Western world has condemned, the United Nations, um, you know, religious organizations. I mean, this is a conflict where we could have peace tomorrow if Russia would simply pull its army back and it would not threaten the Russian people. Um, you know, Ukraine is never going to invade Russia. Um, you know, there, there's just nothing there in terms of, of there being sort of a both sides to this story. Um, and so it felt morally like something that somebody might have seen in World War II when, you know, it was, it was the allies against the Nazis and against Japan. Um, it, it feels like this sort of has some of that clarity to it. And that, that felt unique to me. Did other war correspondents, uh, maybe that you've spoken with and worked with, who were more experienced at the time, express that same sort of feeling? Did they feel like it was? It felt like a throwback, or maybe other conflicts that they'd cover they'd covered um, throughout the world. I think this. I think this. I think this did feel startlingly kind of black and white to people. It felt, you know, I had this conversation just, you know, over a beer many times where people would say, yeah, you know. Normally, you know, if I'm reporting on, you know, a conflict in, in Africa or the Middle East or, or, you know, Afghanistan or wherever, you have to be really careful to figure out, you know, who's right, who's wrong. Is there a right and wrong? And in this situation, again, as, as skeptical journalists, you're always looking for, you know, where is the gray zone here? Where is the counter narrative? Um, and it was basically what we were all coming up with was, you know, this is a, a, a war that Vladimir Putin started. Did he have some legitimate concerns? Sure. But they're the kinds of things that could have been adjudicated by international tribunals. They're the kinds of things that weren't posing some kind of imminent threat to his society. Um, and so, you know, and again, I, I remain open still to somebody coming forward with some kind of factual basis that says, here's you know, here's a reason why what Russia is doing makes some kind of sense. But, you know, what Russia is doing at this point, um, there are as many as 50,000 individual war crimes that have been documented already. And that's probably an undercount. And so um, when you look at the horror of what the Kremlin and Moscow are doing to Ukraine, a democracy, um, it's very hard not to say that there is a, a moral clarity to this. Um, and again, that feels very old fashioned in some ways. Right now, we're listening to and watching NPR correspondent Brian Mann, and we're having a discussion that is entitled Inside Covering the War in Ukraine. This is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, and we're doing this in conjunction with the American Homefront Project, and it's sponsored by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Um, Brian, I kind of want to shift this a little bit. Um, what key issue 
do you think that's going on right now in Ukraine and during the times that you have been there that's not being discussed discussed by the the uh, big media outlets? And that question comes from Leslie. Um, thanks for your question, Leslie. I think um, I think one of the things that's really hard to report on and really challenging to to get at, and this is why it's I think underreported, is what might change the war from Moscow's perspective? How could this affect Russian society uh, and the Russian leadership in a way that that there is some change of approach or some change in strategy? Right now, it's very difficult to be a journalist inside Russia. Um, I think the people who I've spoken to about this are um, pretty in the dark about who could influence Vladimir Putin to, to make some different choices here. Um, you know, what international pressure could cause there to be a change. Um, and so I think one of the stories that I would love to see more um, attention to is, and I get asked this all the time, is how will this end? How will all of what we're seeing on the ground in Ukraine lead to some kind of resolution? Um, and, uh, and I think the reason for that is, is simply that Right now, it's it's pretty opaque. It's difficult to get into Moscow and to ask hard questions. Um, you know, journalists can be arrested there and incarcerated, um, and uh, it's just not a safe place to work. A lot of news organizations have shut down their Moscow bureaus, um, and so I think that's one of the really big questions. Um, you know, what will sort of cause a shift in the direction of of the decision of of Russia to continue? Uh, perpetrating this violence. Um, and uh, I, I think there are some really good journalists who, who are probably working away at that right now. Um, and so I, I hope to see more of that really good reporting soon. And we also have a question uh, from Susan. Uh, Susan's question is, how can all the work that's been done by NPR in coverage like yours, that, that Susan feels is very good, uh, how can that be more broadly disseminated so that people in the United States don't lose interest in the conflict? Like you, like we're saying, it's still going on and you don't even know how it's going to end. It's a really good question. Obviously, when you know, you're know you a journalist and you become really focused on a story, uh, as I am with Ukraine, it does break your heart a little bit when the attention of the country begins to shift away. Um, I understand it. It's natural. You know, the midterm elections come, you know, lots of other news events come and people, you know, frankly, we're all kind of overwhelmed right now by the news cycle. There's so much going on. Um, I will say that I'm incredibly proud that NPR has just, again, assigned a permanent, really talented correspondent, Joanna Kakissis, to do this work in Ukraine. So, her work will continue to be really powerful and human. And I think that will pull people in. Um, beyond that, it's it's a really tough challenge. You know, it's hard to get people's attention. Uh, one other thing that I will just be very, you know, sort of frank and vulnerable about is I think a lot of people are burned out on dark and depressing stories. I cover the opioid epidemic when I'm not doing this work. And I have to be very careful about 
not just overwhelming people with doom all the time. And, um, and so that is another thing. If I, if I could say that one strategy that I love about NPR and our storytelling from Ukraine is that, yes, we tell the hard stories about the suffering and the war and the violence, but you will also hear joy. You will hear music. You will hear, and, and this is the truth of almost any place you go in the world. Um, this is another thing that I took away from Ukraine, but I've taken it away from many disaster areas, many ugly things that I've reported on, is it's really easy to get lost in the darkness, to get to where you think that's all that it is. But that's not true. It's There is so much beauty in Ukraine. There is so much dance and art and creativity. And um, I, I don't want to sugarcoat the ugliness of it. That's there too. But um, and I think NPR is doing a good job. Some other media organizations are also doing a good job to use light as well as darkness to tell the story. And hopefully that will allow people to keep coming back, not just be overwhelmed by it or, or begin to tune it out. And, and again, I don't say that people are tuning out Ukraine in a bitter way. I understand it. It's hard to, to keep these things in our minds right now. Um, so I think that kind of storytelling where there is at least some joy and some beauty along with the hard truths. That's one way I think we can keep this in front of people. Now, even though NPR has appointed a permanent uh, correspondent for Ukraine, you've mentioned already that you're looking to go back. What's drawing you back there to also to continue to tell, to tell the story or to pick up uh, where you left off from the last time that you were forced to come back to the United States? Yeah, so um, once I'm completely healthy again, I would like to go back. It'll obviously be up to NPR and whether it sort of fits their editorial needs at the time. But um, I'm very uh, committed to this story. I I really fell in love with the the Ukrainian people and uh, with you know this this story. There's something happening there, Rod. That is, um, you know, there is a democracy there that's being tested in a really profound way. And I'm really interested in this. I'm interested in people who believe in democracy who. Um, you know, are willing to make great sacrifices for it. Um, I am, uh, yeah, I, I'm really drawn to continuing to tell the story, you know, if there's a role for me to play there. So I, I would uh, I would go back in a heartbeat and, and will if, if circumstances allow it. Well, you left under circumstances that uh, you got injured and you needed to get out of there. But Paul asked, was it difficult to leave Ukraine after establishing all the relationships that you did uh, with your team, plus the civilians that you've reported on and that you were in contact with? It, it, it Heartbreaking. It was, you know, um, and I have to say that whenever I see other journalists rotating out of Ukraine, uh, which is a standard practice for mental health and for wellness, a lot of news organizations will regularly rotate their correspondents out. It's a really good practice, I think. And what you see is them constantly saying, oh, I, I'm, I'm ready for a break. I need to come home for a little while, see my family, all of those things. But also just a real heartache to leave Ukraine and leave the people there. And I certainly felt that. And I communicate all the time with people who I met there. I have um, one of the beauties of living in this modern age is that, you know, the people are a quick message away, a Zoom call away, Facebook message away. And so um, I'm in, in touch with people there all the time and uh, and really love that. So, yeah, I'm 
um, I'm, I'm as connected as I can be. And since you cover addiction for NPR and you've covered now, you, you're, you're a war correspondent. Is there a similarity in how you've approached both of those, those seemingly different issues? Well, I will say, you know, one of the things that happened last year is that uh, in the United States, we lost about 107,000 people to fatal overdoses. That's in one year. Um, and so there is a, a, a kind of similar loss, a sense of loss. You know, again, the violence in Ukraine, I don't want to in any way minimize what's happening there. But there is a profound loss also here at home in, in what's happened with the addiction crisis. And um, and there is, a, I, I, in many ways, I do tell these stories very similarly in that I, I go in and I look for really human people who I can connect with and I can spend time with. Um, I try to slow down and listen to them and spend time with them. Um, it's not always possible, but to the extent that I can, I really try to have a very human connection and then, and then do this very beautiful thing that I get to do, which is try to bring their voices and their stories back to as many people as I can. And that's a, um, and, and many of the techniques that I use in Ukraine are also the same techniques I would use in a disaster area or in a homeless camp here in the United States or, you know, other places. So um, being vulnerable, shutting up and listening, really being quiet and still and just letting people talk to you, letting them tell their stories, letting them um, feel what they're feeling and trying to relate to it as much as possible. Um, those are all things that uh, I think work, whether you're in a war zone or, or covering some other kind of, of difficult thing. NPR correspondent Brian Mann talking about his experience covering the war in Ukraine last year. He was talking with St. Louis Public Radio's Rod Milam for a conversation last month that's part of the American Homefront Project. That's a major CPB-funded initiative that reports on the lives of military personnel, veterans, and their families. Our thanks to Brian Mann and Rod Milam, as well as to all of those at St. Louis Public Radio who helped make this event happen. Today's episode was produced by Alex Hoyer. Podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Audio engineering by Alex Hoyer. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.